And we're actually going to be looking at our statement of faith. We're blessed to be part of a group of churches that created a statement of faith. That was, it was quite an undertaking. It involved thousands of hours, many iterations, and years to develop. And this is certainly not something we as a church or pastoral team could have done alone. And along with many other blessings, our statement of faith is one of the reasons we are so glad to be in community with Sovereign Grace Churches. Today we're in the third of a four-sermon series on our statement of faith. Each week we're covering a central topic and answering a question. In week one, we looked at the role of Scripture as our rule of faith and practice and answered why we need a statement of faith. We learned that we need to know what the Bible means, not just what it says. Last week, we looked at the wonderful doctrine of sovereign grace, God's initiative and centrality in our salvation and in all areas of life. We made it clear that there's room for you here as you wrestle through elements of the doctrines of grace. Today, we're looking at what it was that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. With that, open your Bibles or your Bible app to a verse that is not on your bulletin. I swapped it out. Go to Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3, verse 13. If you're new to the Bible, you can find it near the end. If you don't have a Bible, we have some copies available up on the table near the entrance. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version, or ESV. So if you have that, follow along. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The Scripture declares that Jesus redeemed us by hanging on a tree. This is about Jesus' death on the cross. It tells how we're saved. Salvation through the cross is central to Christian belief. But what happened there? Why was it needed? What are we saved from? I'm going to give you a, a big 50-cent theological phrase. Are you ready? Our salvation happened through penal substitutionary atonement. This doctrine is not popular in some circles. It's not popular because it says that mankind is not okay, but sinners under a curse. It is considered distasteful because it states that God requires the penalty of death for sin. It's considered ugly because it calls for the shedding of blood to save us from God's wrath. Penal substitutionary atonement is what happened on the cross. 
there, Jesus took the curse we deserve. There he paid the penalty of death for our sin with his own blood. Some call this cosmic child abuse, but we call it amazing grace. Some see it as ugly, but for us, it's the most beautiful demonstration of love ever displayed. With Paul, we declare, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Before I begin, I'm in need of God's help, so please pray with me. Father, this morning I come trembling as we look into the cross and what Jesus did there. We are on holy ground. The cross is central to all of history and is the most precious truth ever revealed to man. Jesus, as we look at your work on the cross, give us eyes to see all that you did when you chose to die as the substitute in our place. Truly, as John the Baptist declared, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. The title of our sermon today is On the Cross. Study of the cross is crucial to our faith in a very literal sense. The root word of that word crucial is actually crux, which is cross, and it means pertaining to the cross. In Christianity, the most critical, the thing that stands at the center, the thing that is truly crucial is the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. And this morning, that's our focus. We're going to reference our statement of faith as we proceed as our standard for doctrinal understanding in membership and ordination. We as members commit to believe and grow in the biblical truths reflected here. And as pastors, we commit to teach and defend it. So go to pages 31 and 32. Page 31 and 32. You'll see a heading, The Saving Work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read the entire section entitled, The Humiliation of Christ in His Saving Work. And then we'll focus on two components. You can read along with me. In the entirety of his life and death, Jesus Christ humbled himself to serve as our mediator in obedience to his Father's saving purposes. As the second Adam, his sinless life of wholehearted obedience to God's law obtained the gift of perfect righteousness and eternal life for all of God's elect. In his substitutionary death, on behalf of his people, Christ offered himself by the Spirit, by the Spirit, as a perfect sacrifice. 
which satisfied the demands of God's law by paying the full penalty for their sins. On the cross, Christ bore our sins, took our punishment, propitiated God's wrath against us, vindicated God's righteousness, and purchased our redemption in order that we might be reconciled to God and live with Him in blessed fellowship forever. This statement highlights penal substitutionary atonement. The third sentence states that Jesus paid a substitutionary death on behalf of His people, offering Himself as a perfect sacrifice that paid the penalty for their sins. While you won't find the words penal substitutionary atonement in a Bible search, this theological term describes a reality that's all over the Bible. The need for atonement arises from the universal sinfulness of mankind and our hopeless inability to deal with it. The Bible's clear on this sad reality. But God, in His love and mercy, has always made provision through substitution. We see this all through the Old Testament. The need for atonement happened early. Back in Eden, in Genesis 2, God commanded, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam and Eve ignored the warning and ate of the tree, and as God had declared, the curse of death came. But amazingly, the first death we see isn't what, isn't, it wasn't Adam and Eve. While they hid and made some pathetic fig leaf loincloths trying to cover their shame, God does better. He sacrificed animals, making garments of skins to cover their shame. We see God do this again in Egypt. In the Passover, God's judgment passed over those who covered the doorposts of their house with the blood of a lamb without blemish. In Exodus 12, 13, God said, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land. Here God provided a substitute to die in their place. A lamb would die so that an Israelite family would be saved from his judgment. In It Is Well, an excellent book on substitutionary atonement, Mark Dever notes, judgment fell on the Egyptians while God's people were delivered. Not because they were inherently better or because their ethnicity protected them, but because of the substitute slain in their place. The Lord judged Egypt, but saw the blood of the slain lamb 
and therefore passed over the sins of his people. The Old Testament goes on to tell of a system of sacrifices which God gave Israel so that substitutionary atonement could be made. It involved the sacrifice of animals in place of the offerer so that their sins were covered. The book of Leviticus, Leviticus tells of all kinds, but it, and it goes into great detail about the sacrifices and the day of atonement. Here's an example. Listen to these instructions from Leviticus 16, 8 through 10 about entering the holy place. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Two kinds of sacrifices, but both show penal substitutionary atonement. One goat was sacrificed with his blood serving as a sin offering. The second goat, called a scapegoat, that's where we get that expression, represented the worshiper's sin transferred onto the animal that was then driven away into the wilderness in both cases, the animal stands in for the offerer. This is not limited to the Old Testament. Hebrews 9 makes clear the connection between these Old Testament sacrifices and the death of Christ on the cross. Speaking of sacrifices in the holy place, it says, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in, into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. Amazing. The New Testament declares that the substitution in the Old Testament sacrifices was pointing to something more, to the ultimate reality to the greater and perfect sacrifice. Substitutionary atonement reaches its culmination and end in Christ. Jesus is the substitute once and for all. We stand in awe of Him. He fulfilled the prophecy of the messianic suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Knowing that Jesus saved us from the punishment we deserve by substituting His own life in our place, this morning we're going to look into seven specific things Jesus accomplished in His atoning work on the cross. Look at the statement of faith on page 32 that begins with, on the cross. We're going to look at these points one by one and revel in them. First, on the cross, Christ bore our sins. If you notice the little numbers in the statement, those are footnotes of Scripture that support the statement. Footnote 2.12, for this point, references 1 Peter 2.24. Listen to it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. Said another way, 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing. Jesus was willing to carry our sins on Himself. He so identified with those dark corners of your life, with those failures, with those areas you hide from others in your shame, that on the cross, He became those sins for you. And what happens to those Jesus died for? First Peter 2 says they die to sin. They live to righteousness. They are healed. Amazingly, as 2 Corinthians 5 made clear, Jesus became sin. And then those who receive Him become the righteousness of God. Secondly, not only did Jesus bear our sins, but on the cross, Christ took our punishment for those sins. From Genesis 3 on, mankind has been under the curse of death, under God's holy judgment. So what has Jesus done? Listen to Galatians 3.13, our opening verse again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He took the curse for us. All of the punishment we deserve was poured out on Him. He was spit on, slapped, whipped, mocked, stripped, and then nailed to a cross. His friends ran away and even denied they knew Him. Even worse, and so much worse, God turned His back on Him. On the cross, just before He died, Jesus cried out, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died an excruciating death completely alone. And we, the ones who deserve that, all go free. Stunning. Jesus' death on the cross was complete and final in dealing with our curse. He took our punishment. The next wonder described in the statement is that on the cross, Christ propitiated God's wrath against us. Romans 5.9 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Propitiation is a word we don't hear or use much. It's the appeasement of anger. The turning away of wrath. Wrath is also a a word not used much anymore. Not very popular. But wrath is strong anger or indignation against injustice. And in the case of God, a determined opposition to and hatred of sin. When we hear that God is wrathful, it can make us uncomfortable. We might think, how can God be wrathful and loving? But hear this from the the New Dictionary of Theology. Wrath, in biblical terms, is not like human anger. It's not uncontrolled rage, but the inevitable response of personal pure love to that which is unholy. We should note that although wrath may be the need for atonement, love is the ground of atonement. God takes the initiative not only in dealing with sin, but in removing the personal opposition to our access into God's righteous presence in propitiation. Love and wrath are therefore not contradictory in God. Through the cross, a holy God secures for sinners totally and incomprehensibly what we cannot do for ourselves through His love and in His own person. This is what, the makes, this is what makes the charge of cosmic child abuse fall flat. Jesus, who is God the Son, who is one with the Father, chose to face the fury of holy wrath on the cross. God Himself drank the full cup of the wrath of God so that we could be saved. The confidence that in Christ we cannot be condemned because He was condemned in our place should leave us all as Christians in humble 
and speechless wonder. And what happened? We're still not finished. In the astounding wisdom of God, Jesus' death on the cross also vindicated God's righteousness. Vindication is the proof, proof that someone or something is right, reasonable, or justified. Christ's work on the cross vindicates God's holy and loving character. If God leaves sin unpunished, He is unjust. And if He justly condemns mankind, how can He show His love? How can God display both His justice and His love? Listen to Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If God forgives sin without punishment, if His promised curse of death isn't true, God is a liar. If He doesn't oppose evil, He's not holy. Conversely, if God acts in perfect justice and wipes out mankind, which would be the just thing, where is His love and mercy? By offering His Son on the cross, God is both just and the justifier of those He saves. His holy justice was satisfied as He punished sin in the death of Jesus but also His love and mercy were on full display as He chose to take our sin on Himself, becoming our justifier. On the cross, the justice and mercy of God meet and kiss. Continuing with the amazing blessings that came from Christ's sacrifice, on the cross, Christ purchased our redemption. Redemption is a concept in the Old Testament where a relative takes action to set free a member of his family or buys back property. Listen to how Jesus redeemed us as noted in Romans 3, 23, 24, where it said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're justified. We're redeemed by grace. But how? Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. 
Through Jesus' blood, we are redeemed. He paid the ransom price to secure our release from the curse of sin. Jesus himself declared that he came to do this. He said in Mark 10, 10.45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus purchased our redemption through his blood. He gave his life to pay our ransom. We are free because of him. Why is this redemption so crucial? That brings us to our next point. Redemption was paid in order that we might be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relations, making peace between enemies and here between God and mankind. The Bible makes it clear that our sin and rebellion made us enemies with God. Romans 5.10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This morning, if you are here and you feel distant from God, you fear His displeasure, you you see all of the hostility and turmoil, turmoil that has come from your sin, it can be done away with. Not only that, you can be given the ministry of reconciliation. Do you know what makes good relationships? Do you, know, do you know what can keep a marriage at peace? Do you know what can bring teens and parents together? Do you know what can make enemies into friends? It's when they have received the forgiveness of Christ, are at peace with God, And then live in that forgiveness and grace with their friend, their spouse, their child, their neighbor. And Jesus, you can be at peace with God and at peace with your neighbor. That is the ministry of reconciliation. That is the outcome of living in His grace. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And that brings us to our final point. The grand finale of all this work of Christ is that we might live with Him in blessed fellowship forever. Fellowship means sharing in, participating in together. Christ's work opens up participation in the very life and love 
of the triune God. We see this prophesied in Ezekiel 37, 27, where it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That prophecy was fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus prayed for this in the high priestly prayer in John 17. Listen to verses 1 to 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son so that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The end of Jesus' mission was to give eternal life in the very presence of God. His people knowing the triune God in close fellowship forever. Revelation 21 gives us just a glimpse of what's coming. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither, that sh neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. With that, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we are astounded that you took our place on the cross. Thank you for bearing our sin. Thank you for taking our punishment. Thank you for being crushed under the wrath that we deserve. Your sacrifice displays the glory of your holiness and your mercy. You have purchased our redemption. 
You have reconciled us to yourself and to others. You have given us peace. And we live each day in the sure hope that soon we will be in your presence forever. Your grace and kindness never end. For any here who don't know you today, we pray they will come to know the amazing grace that you offer as a gift. Open their eyes to see. Give them hearts to believe this astonishing good news. We pray that one day, in your presence together, we will bow in humility and gratefulness, forever worshiping the Lamb who was slain for us. Amen.